The following is a conversation with Sylvia McCauley, a computer scientist at MIT, winner of the Turing Award, and one of the leading minds in the fields of cryptography, information security, game theory, and most recently, cryptocurrency and the theoretical foundations of a fully decentralized, secure, and scalable blockchain at Algorand, a company of cryptographers, engineers, and mathematicians that he founded in 2017. Quick mention of our sponsors, Athletic Greens Nutrition Drink, the Information In-Depth Tech Journalism website, Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee, and BetterHelp Online Therapy. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that I will be having many conversations this year on the topic of cryptocurrency. I'm reading and thinking a lot on this topic. I just recently finished reading the Bitcoin Standard, a book I highly recommend. As always, with this podcast, I'm approaching it with an open mind, with compassion, with as little ego as possible, and yes, with love. I hope you go along with me on this journey and don't judge me too harshly on any likely missteps. As usual, I will play devil's advocate. I will, on purpose, sometimes ask simple, even dumb questions, all to try and explore the space of ideas here with as much grace as I can muster. I have no financial interests here. I only have a simple curiosity and a love for knowledge especially about a set of technologies that may very well transform the fabric of human civilization. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review an Apple podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now. There's timestamps, so you can skip. But if you skip, please do still check out the sponsors. Click the links, buy the stuff, whatever you have to do. It, it really is the best way to support this podcast. This show is sponsored by Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. It's the first thing I drink every day. It's funny, I had a conversation with uh, Jonathan from MIT, a friend of mine, who I just discovered was an ultra marathon runner. And he talked about one of the mistakes he made is he really didn't ramp up slowly enough. So he had to pay for the cost there. And I made this comment that, you know, life involves taking risks like that, you know, when you're not actually fully prepared, but uh, taking on the task anyway, and sometimes it's worth it. But given that it does seem nutritionally and physically in terms of like muscle, it's worthwhile to have like a base, like a balanced base of health based on which you can do some like epic crazy stuff. So I think it's good to see life as always trying to maintain a healthy base that enables you to, in a somewhat healthy way, take on crazy activities. And, you know, Athletic Greens is on the nutrition side is that's how I see them, is they give me the basic nutritions I need, even if I mess up with the diet, even if I mess up with whatever sleep and whatever crazy stuff I do. Anyway, they also have uh, fish oil and they're giving you one month supply free when you sign up at athleticgreens.com slash Lex. That's athleticgreens.com slash Lex for the drink and the fish oil. Trust me, it's awesome. They're one of my favorite sponsors.
Some of these reads, by the way, might go long, but you have timestamps you can skip. You don't have to listen to this, but I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to do some interesting stuff that's actually worthwhile listening to. So hopefully it's fun and I'm trying to improvise more and more and just have fun with this thing. Life is short. I'm gonna have fun with everything, even sponsor reads. <laughs> this show is sponsored by The Information. It's a website and a media company, I guess you can call it. They do in-depth, data-driven, investigative journalism in the world of technology. I first came across their work a few years ago and remember being surprised that it was kind of expensive to sign up to, but I kept reading the stories and uh, it pulled me in. The The care, the depth of the reporting made me realize, oh, okay, this, <laughs> this is what money can buy. So I think there was some stuff that I didn't always agree with, but I always felt like it was the kind of journalism that was missing from the clickbait world of uh, tech reporting. So I signed up even though I couldn't really afford it at the time, and has been truly worth it. In fact, the information is one of the places that made me think that there's hope for journalism. In some sense, it feels like the engagement mechanisms that are driven by social media is uh, driving our journalistic integrity into the ground. And uh, so the financial model that the information operates under it feels like it's a savior. There's also perhaps a side comment, or perhaps it's actually one of the main qualities of the information, is because of the quality of the reporting and the writing, the kind of people that read it. So like the some of the most successful CEOs I'm aware of read it. So it brings a lot of influential people together. So then indirectly the information becomes one of the places you go to to understand what the sort of influential minds in the world of tech are thinking about. Anyway, you can get 75% off your first month if you sign up at theinformation.com slash Lex. That's theinformation.com slash Lex. Besides anything else, I see it just as a good way of supporting in-depth journalism. I hope you do as well. This show is also sponsored by Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. I know what you're asking. Does the coffee taste like mushrooms? No, in fact, it does not. There's a bunch of healthy benefits they keep telling me about. You can uh, research it yourself on the website. <laughs> but uh, all I know is it tastes good, it makes me feel good. And I'm a huge fan of coffee. Also, even though I'm mentioning mushrooms, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, there is no psychedelic properties to this coffee. That said, I will be having a lot of conversations with psychedelics researchers on this podcast. I think it's, uh, in terms of the next couple of decades, one of the most exciting areas of research in the space of neuroscience, neurobiology, in the space of psychology, cognitive science, and even just philosophy. So, and even just medicine for overcoming addiction and all those kinds of things. But back to the coffee. Get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles if you go to foursigmatic.com slash Lex. That's foursigmatic.com slash Lex. This episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. They want me to spell help. I refuse to spell help. It starts with an H, ends with a P, and the rest, please try to figure out. They help you figure out what you need and match you with the licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. I'm now triggered by the number 48 because it happens to be related to the challenge that I recently completed, the 4x4x48 challenge from David Goggins. Speaking of which, that man is not a licensed professional therapist, but he in fact is one of the kind of philosophical mentors, philosophical guides for me in exploring my own mind, the limits of my own mind, 
the madness of my mind, the temper ups and downs and the anger and how to use it successfully and how to avoid it and all those kinds of things. He truly is one of the most fascinating people I know, and dare I say, almost like a kindred spirit to me in terms of the madness. So I very much look forward to doing a podcast with him. We postponed the one we were supposed to do for the 4x4x48 four by four by because I hurt my foot and couldn't really push myself to the limit as I wanted to. So we decided to wait until everything is healed and I can really do some crazy stuff together with them and combine a podcast on top of that. Anyway, BetterHelp is easy, private, affordable, available worldwide. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash flex. That's betterhelp.com slash flex. And now, here's my conversation with Silvio McCauley. Let's start with the big and the basic question. What is a blockchain and why is it interesting? Why is it fascinating? Why is it powerful? All right. So a blockchain, think of it, is a, is really a common database distributed. Think about it as a ledger in which everybody can write an entry in a page. You can write, I can write, and everybody can read and you have a guarantee that everybody has the same copy of the ledger that is in front of you. So if whatever you see on page seven, anyone else sees on page seven. So what is uh, extraordinary about this is this uh, common knowledge thing that I think is a really a first for humanity. I mean, if you look at communication, like right now, you can communicate very quickly, images, thoughts, photos, but do you ever have a certainty that whatever you have received has been received by everybody else? Not really. And so this commonality of knowledge and the certainty that everybody can write, nobody has, has been prevented from writing whatever they want, nobody can erase, nobody can tear a page of a ledger, nobody can swap page, nobody can change anything, and uh, that is an immutable common record is uh, extremely powerful. And uh, there's some fundamental that is decentralized about it. So at least in spirit, uh, some degree, or against maybe a resistance to centralization. Absolutely. If it is not decentralized, how can it be common knowledge? If only one person or a few people have a ledger, they only, you don't have a ledger, you have to ask, you know, what is on page seven? And how do you know that whatever they tell you is on page seven, they tell the same thing to everybody else. And so um, that is, this commonality is uh, extremely uh, powerful. Just, uh, just to give you an example, assume that uh, you do an auction, okay? You have uh, worked very hard, you build a building, and now you want to auction off. Makes sense because uh, you want to auction worldwide, better yet, you want to tokenize the building and sell it in, all in parcels. Now, everybody sees the bids. And you know that everybody sees the bids. You and I see the same bids, and so does everybody else. So you know that a fair price has reached, and you know who owns what and who has paid how much. And if you do it instead of otherwise, you know, in a centralized system, I put a bid, say, oh, congratulations, Alex, you won, and your price is $12,570. How do you know? <laughs> so if instead of this 
common knowledge is a very powerful uh, uh, tool for humanity. So we return to it from a bunch of different perspectives, including like a technical perspective, but you often talk about blockchain and some of these concepts of decentralization, scalability, security, all those kinds of things. But one of the most maybe impactful, exciting things that leverage the blockchain, this kind of ledger idea of common knowledge is cryptocurrency. So the in the financial yes. space. So is there, can you say, in the same kind of basic way, what is cryptocurrency in the context of this common knowledge and in the context of the blockchain? Great. Cryptocurrency right, is, a, is a currency that is on such a ledger. So imagine that on the ledger, right, uh, initially, you know that somehow, say, you and I are the only owner, each one, let's give it a, our, uh, ourselves a billion uh, each of whatever this unit. Then I start a uh, uh, writing on the ledger, I give a hundred of these units to my sister. You give my, I give this much to my aunt, and then, uh, and then now because it's written on the ledger and everybody can see, my sister can give fifty-seven of these units that she received from me to somebody else, and so and and and, and that is money, and that is money because you can see that somebody who tenders your payment as really the money there, right? You don't have any more of a doubt when you want to sell an item. If I write your check, is the check covered? If um, I write, or um, do I have the money at the moment of a transaction? You really see, because the ledger is always updated, what you see is what I see, what the merchant sees. You know where the money so is so uh, is the most um, powerful uh, um, um, money system there is because uh, it is totally transparent and so you know that uh, you have been paid and uh, and you know that the money is there you have not to second guess anything else so the the common knowledge applied there is you're basically mimicking the same kind of thing you would get in the physical space which is uh if you give a hundred bucks or a hundred of that thing whatever of that cryptocurrency to your sister the actual transfer is as real as you giving like a, a, a basket of apples to your sister. Because that, uh, so in the case, in the physical space, the the common knowledge is in the physics uh, right. of right. the atoms. Yes. And in its digital space, the common knowledge is in this ledger. And so that transfer holds um, the same kind of power, but now it's operating in the digital space. Correct. Again, I apologize for a set of ridiculous questions, but uh, you mentioned cryptocurrencies and money. What What is money? Uh, <laughs> why do we have money? Do you think about this kind of from this high philosophical level at times of this uh, tool, this idea that we humans have all kind of came up with and seem to be using effectively to do stuff? <laughs> money is a social construct, okay, in, in, in my opinion. And this has been uh, somehow, people always felt that somehow money is a way to allow us uh, to transact, even though we want different things. Yeah. So I have uh, uh, two sheep, and then uh, you have uh, one cow. And uh, I want the cow, but uh, you are looking for blankets instead. You know, So to have money, it really simplifies this. But at the end of, and that's why a bit was invented, 
and you started with gold, you started when with coinage, when you started with check. But at the end of the day, money is uh, essentially a social construct because you know that what you receive, you can actually spend with somebody else. And so there is a kind of a social pact and social belief that, that, that you have. At the end of the day, even a barter is a, requires um, this beliefs that other people are going to accept the quote-unquote currency you offer them. Because if I'm a mason and you ask me to build a wall uh, in your uh, field, and I did, and you, uh, in exchange, you give me a thousand sheep, what am I going to do? Eat them all? No, I have to feed them. <laughs> and if I don't feed them, they die, and I, my value is zero. So in receiving this uh, livestock, I must believe that somebody else will accept them in return for something else. Yeah, so money is this uh, social belief, social shared belief system that um, makes people transact. That's fascinating. I didn't even I didn't even think about that. That you you're actually. Uh, you you have a deep like network of beliefs about how society operates. So the value is assigned even to sheep based on that everyone will continue operating how they were previously operating. Yeah. Somebody will feed the sheep. Some <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even think about that. That's that's fascinating. So that directly transfers to uh to the space of money and then to the space of digital money, cryptocurrency. Okay. Uh, does it bother you? sort of intellectually when this money that is a social construct is not directly tied to physical goods like uh, gold, for example? Not at all, because after all, gold has some uh, industrial value. Nobody denies it. It's a, it's a metal. It doesn't oxidate. It has some good things about it. But uh, does this industrial value really represent the value to which it now is traded? No. So gold is another way to express our belief. I give you an ounce of gold, uh, you treat it like, oh, somebody else will want this for doing uh, um, something else. So it is really this notion of this. Money is a, a mental construct, is really, uh, and is a shared, is a, is a social construct, I really I believe. And so some people feel that it's physical, so therefore gold exists. Uh, then, uh, as you know now, uh, we um, countries, most sophisticated uh, countries right now, uh, they print their own money, and you believe that they are not going to exaggerate it with inflation. Not everybody believes it, but I'm saying it. there is at least a, not, they are not going to exaggerate it blatantly, and, uh, and therefore you receive it because you know that uh, somebody else will accept it, will have faith in the currency, and so on and so forth. But the whether it's gold, whether it's livestock, whether whatever it is, money is really a shared belief. So there, there is something you know, and I've been reading more and more about different cryptocurrencies. There is a kind of uh, belief that the scarcity of a particular resource like Bitcoin has a limited amount uh, and it's tied to physical, you know, uh, to, uh, to, to proof of work. So it's tied to physical reality in terms of how much you can mine effectively and so on, that that's an important feature of money. Do you think that's an important feature to be uh, part of whatever the money is? That is certainly a very useful part. So. Um, at some point in time, you know, assume that you know, money is something that all of a sudden we say, this is our money, our currency. 
<laughs> then, uh, you know, I offer you 10 days in payment of whatever goods and services you want to provide. But, but at, at the end of the day, if you know that uh, you can cultivate it and generate them uh, at will, then uh, perhaps, you know, you should not accept my payment. In, uh, here is a, 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 a bouquet of daisies. So you need <laughs> some kind of a scarcity, the inability to create it suddenly out of nothing is, uh, is, uh, is unimportant. And uh, um, uh, it's not that intrinsic necessity, but it's much easier to accept once you know that there is a fixed number of units or whatever currency there is and therefore you can mentally understand i'm getting you know this much of this piece of, of a pie and therefore i consider myself paid i understand what i'm receiving you describe the goals of a blockchain you have a nice presentation on this uh, as scalability security and uh, decentralization and you challenge the blockchain trilemma that claims you can only have two of the three so let's talk about each <laughs> what is scalability in the context of blockchain and cryptocurrency? What does scalability mean? So remember, we said that the blockchain is a ledger and each page receives a, gets some transaction and everybody can write in these uh, uh, pages of a ledger. Nobody can be stopped for writing and everybody can read them. Okay, scalability means how fast can you write? Just imagine that you can write an entry in this uh, special shared ledger once every hour. Well, you know, what are you going to do if you have you know, one transaction per hour, uh, the world that doesn't go around. So you need uh, to have scalability means here that you can somehow write a lot of, of transaction and then uh, you, you can read them and everybody can validate them. And that is the speed and, 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 this, um, and the number of transactions um, uh, per second and the fact that they are shared. So you want to have this, uh, this, uh, the speed not only in writing but in in sharing and uh, and uh, in inspection for validity. This is scalability. The world is big. The world wants to interact. With, the people want to interact with each other, and uh, you better be prepared to have a ledger in which you can write lots and lots and lots of transactions in this special way, very 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 quickly. So maybe from a more mathematical perspective, or can we say something about how much scalability is needed? for a world that is big? <laughs> <laughs> well, it really depends how many transactions um, you want. But remember that you know, I, I think you know, I'm uh, right now yet to go into at least a thousands of transactions uh, um, uh, per second. Even if you look at you know, um, um, credit cards, right? You know, we are going to go from uh, an average of 1,600 to peaks of uh, uh, 20,000, uh, 40,000, uh, something like this. But, uh, but remember, it's not only a question of uh, of the transaction per se, but the value is that the transaction is actually being shared and visible to everybody, and the certainty that that is the case. I can uh, print on, on my own printer uh, way more transactions, but nobody has the time to see or to inspect. That doesn't count, right? So you want scalability at this common knowledge level. That is the challenge. I also meant from a perspective of like uh, like a complexity analysis. So does it, you know, when you get more and more people involved, does it need to scale in some kind of way that, uh, like, it, do, you, do you like to see certain kind of properties in order to say something is scalable? 
Oh, absolutely. I took a little bit implicitly that the people transacting are uh, actually very different. Mm. So if there is uh, two people who can do uh, uh, fast transaction per second with each other, this is not so interesting. What we really need is to say there are billions of people and at any point in time, you know, thousands and thousands of them want to transact with, with each other and you want to support that. So Algorand, uh, it solves, so that's the, the, the company, the team of cryptographers, mathematicians, engineers, so on, that challenged the blockchain trilemma. So let's break it down in terms of achieving scalability. How do we achieve scalability? in the space of blockchain, in the space of cryptocurrency. Okay, so uh, scalability, security, remember, and uh, decentralization, yes. right? So yeah. that, that's what, what you want. What's the best way to approach? Can we break it down? Let's start with scalability and think about how do we achieve it? Well, to achieve it at a, one at a time is uh, um, uh, perhaps easy. Even security, if nobody transacts, nobody loses money. So that is secure, but it's not <laughs> scalable. Good so point. let me tell you, I'm a cryptographer. So I, so I try to um, fight the bad guys. And uh, what, you, what you want is that a vessel ledger that we discussed before uh, cannot be tampered with. So you must think of it that uh, it's a special ink that nobody can erase. Okay. Then it has to be, uh, everybody should be able uh, to read and not to alter the, the pages or the content of the pages. That's okay. But you know what? That is actually easy cryptographically. Easy cryptographically means you can use tools invented 50 years ago, which in cryptographic time is prehistory, okay? We are <laughs> cavemen working around yes. and solve that problem in cryptography land. But, you know, but there is a really a fundamental problem, which is really almost a social, seems a political problem, is to say, who the hell chooses or publishes the next page on the ledger? I mean, that is really the challenge. This ledger, you can always add a page because more and more transactions are to be written on there. And somebody has to assemble this, this transaction, put them on a page, and add the next page. Who is the somebody who chooses the page and adds it on? Who can be trusted to do it? Exactly. Assume it is me for the time being, and not that I want to volunteer for the job, but then I would have more power than any absolute monarch in history because I would have a tremendous power to say, these are the transactions that the entire world should see, and whatever I don't write, this transaction will never see the light of day. I mean, no one had any such a power in history. So it's very important to, uh, to do that. And that is the quintessential problem in a blockchain and uh, people have thought about it to say it's not me it's not you but for instance in uh, proof of work what people say is they say okay it's not me it's not you you know what it is we make a very difficult we invent you know, a cryptographic puzzle very hard to solve the first one to solve it has the right to add one page to the ledger on behalf of everybody else and that's now is seems okay because you know Sometimes I solve a puzzle before you do, sometimes you solve it before I do, or before somebody else, somebody else solves it, it's okay. And presumably the effort you put in is somehow correlated with how much trust uh, you should be given to add to the ledger. Yeah, so somehow you want to make sure that you, know, you need to work because you want to prevent, you want to make sure that you know, 
you get a one solution every 10 minutes, say, like in, in, in particular example of Bitcoin. So that is very rare that two pages are added at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because if I solve a puzzle at the same time you do, it could happen that if it happens once or twice, we can survive it. But if it happens, you know, every other page, you know, is a double page, then uh, which of the two is the real page, it becomes a problem. So that's why in Bitcoin, it is important that to have a substantial amount of work so that no many how many people try on earth to solve a puzzle, you have one solution out of how many people are trying every 10 minutes so that you have you distanciate these pages and you have the time to propagate through the network a solution and the page attached to it. And therefore, there is one page at a time that is added. And they say, well, why don't we do that? We have a solution. Well, first of all, a page every 10 minutes is not fast enough. So it's a question of scalability. And second of all, to ensure that no matter how many people try, you get a one page every 10 minutes, one solution to the riddle every 10 minutes. This means that uh, the riddle becomes very, very hard. And uh, to, to have a chance to solve it, in, within 10 minutes, you must have such an expensive apparatus in terms of specialized computers, not one, not two, but thousands and thousands of them. And they produce a tons of heat, okay? These, they dissipate heat like a maniac. And then you have to refrigerate them too. And so then now you have air conditioning uh, galore to add to the thing. It becomes so expensive that fewer and fewer and fewer people can actually compete in order to add to the page. And, uh, and the problem becomes uh, so so uh, so um, crucial that you know in uh, in uh, in Bitcoin, um, depending on which day of the week you look at it, you are going to have uh, two or three mining pools are really the ones uh, capable of controlling the chain. So you're and, saying that's uh, that's almost like uh, leads to centralization, right? It started being decentralized. And, uh, but the expenses became higher and higher and higher. When the uh, cost becomes uh, higher and higher, fewer and fewer people can afford them. And then, you know, it becomes, you know, de facto centralized, right? Yeah. And, uh, and a different type of approach uh, is instead, for instance, a delegated proof of stake, which is also very easy to explain. Um, uh, essentially boils down to, to say, well, uh, look at these uh, 21 people say, okay? Uh, don't they look honest? Yes, they do. In fact, I believe that they're going to remain honest for the foreseeable future. So why don't we do ourselves a favor? Let's entrust them to add the page on behalf of all of us to the ledger. Okay. Okay. But now we are going to say, is this centralized or decentralized? Well, 21 is better than one. What <laughs> to say is very little. So if you look at... Uh, when people rebelled to centralized power, I don't know, the French revolutions, okay? Mm -hmm. There was a monarch and the nobles. Yes. Uh, were there 21 nobles? No, there were thousands of them, but there were millions and millions of uh, disempowered uh, citizens. So one is centralized, 21 is also centralized, right? So that's delegated proof of stake. Delegated it's Kind of like representative democracy, I guess. Yes. Which is good. It's working great, right? It's, right. <laughs> it's working great. Well, it's better than uh, it's the better single than monarch, monarch yes. right? 
And uh, but uh, there's and there's problems. There are uh, problems. Yeah. And uh, and so um, uh, we were looking for a different uh, uh, when uh, thinking about Algon for a for a different approach. And so we have uh, an approach in that you know, is really really decentralized because uh, essentially. Uh, in, uh, it works as follows. So you have a bunch of tokens, right? These are the tokens uh, that have equal power and you have, say, 10 billions of tokens distributed um, um, uh, to the entire world. And the owners, each token has a chance to add the ledger, equal probability like everybody else. In fact, actually, if you want, here is how it works. So think about, you know, by some magic cryptographic process, which is not magic, it's mathematics, but think of it as magic, assume that you select a thousand tokens and so sometimes are random, okay? And you have a guarantee that they're random selected. And then this the owners of these 1,000 tokens somehow agree on the next page, they all sign it, and uh, that's the next page, okay? So, it is clear that you know nobody has the power, but you know uh, once a, 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 in a while, one of your tokens is selected, and uh, you are in charge of this committee to select the next page. But this goes around very quickly. So, and if you look at this, the, the question really is uh, that is not really centralized, and uh, because of what for for agreeing on the same page, it is important that the 1,000 tokens that you randomly selected are in honest hands, the majority of them. So, which, if the majority of the tokens are in honest hands, that is essentially true, because if the majority of the tokens are in honest hands, if you select, um, um, say, 90% of the people are, 90% um, um, of the tokens are in honest hands, so can you randomly select 1,000, and in this 1,000 you, you find the 501 uh, um, uh, uh, tokens in bad hands, very, very improbable. So, right. so basically, uh, when a large fraction of people are honest, then you can use randomness as a powerful tool to get decentralization. Correct. So, so what does honesty mean? And uh, now we're into the social side of things, which is uh, how do we know that like the fraction, the, a large fraction of uh, people or participating parties are honest. That is an, an excellent question. So, by the way, first of all, we should realize that the same thing is for every other system. When you look at proof of work, you rely that the majority of the mining power is in honest hands. Yes. When you look at a delegated proof of stake, you rely that the majority of these 21 people are honest. What is the difference? The difference is that... Uh, in these other systems, you should to say the whole economy is secure if the majority of this small piece of economy are honest. Mm. And that is a big question. But instead, what we, in, in Algorand, in our approach, we say the whole economy is secure if the majority of the economy is honest. In other words, who can subvert Algorand? It's not a majority of a small group but is a majority of the token holders had to conspire with each other in order to sink the very economy for which they own the majority of. Yes, that so I think it is a bit harder to- Like a self-destructive majority essentially. And you're also making me realize that basically 
every system that we have in the world today assumes that the majority of participants is honest. Yes, the only difference is the majority of whom. And in, in some right, cases, right. the majority of a club, and in our case, is the majority of the whole system. The whole, the whole system. Okay, so that's, that's fast. So through that kind of uh, random uh, sampling, you can achieve decentralization. You can achieve, so the scalability, I understand. And then the security that you're referring to, basically the security comes from the fact that the sample selected would uh, likely include honest people. So it's very difficult to, so by the way, the, the security as you, as you mentioned that you're referring to is basically security against dishonesty, right? Or manipulation so, or whatever. Yes, yes. So essentially then what you're going to, to do is to the following, say, say, well, Silvio, I understood what you're saying, but somebody has to randomly select these tokens, then I believe you, so then right. who does this random selection? That's a good point. And uh, in, uh, in Algorand, we do something a little bit unorthodox. Essentially, is the token choose themselves at random. And you say, if you think about it, that seems to be a terrible idea. Because <laughs> if you want to say, choose yourself at random, and whoever chooses himself is a fast people committee, you choose the page for for, for, for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And because if I'm a bad person, I'm going to select myself over and over again because I want to be part of the committee every single time. But uh, not so fast. So what do we do in Algorand? What does it mean that I select myself? That each one of us in the privacy of our own computer, actually a laptop, what you do is that you execute your own individual lottery. And... Uh, Think about it that you pull a lever of a slot machine. You can only pull the lever once, not un until you win, not enough times until you win. And when you pull the lever, case one, either you win, in such a case you have a winning ticket, or you lose, you don't get any winning ticket. So if you don't have a winning ticket, you can say anything you want about the next page in the ledger, nobody pays attention. But if you have a winning ticket, People say, oh, wow, this is one of the 1,000 winning tickets. We better pay attention to what he or she says. And that's how it works. And the, the lottery is a cryptographic lottery, which means that even if I am an entire nation, extremely powerful, with incredible computing powers, I don't have the ability to improve even minimally my probability of one of my token winning the lottery. And uh, that's how it happens. So everybody pulls the lever the 1,000 random winners say, oh, here is my winning ticket and here is my opinion up or down about the block. These are the ones that count. And if you think about it, while this is distributed, because there is, in the case of Algon, there is 10 billion tokens and you select a, a thousand of them more distributed than this, you cannot get. And then why is this, you know, scalable? Because what do you have to do? Okay, you have to do the lottery, how long the lottery takes, it takes actually one microsecond. Hmm. Whether you have one token or two tokens or a billion tokens is always one microsecond of computation, which is very fast. We don't hit the planet with a microsecond of computation. And, and finally, why is this secure? Because even if I were a very evil and very, very powerful individual, 
I'm so powerful that I can corrupt anybody I want instantaneously in the world. Whom would I want to corrupt? The people in the committee, so that I can choose the page of the ledger. But I do have a problem. I do not know whom I should corrupt. Should I corrupt this lady in Shanghai, this other guy in Paris? Because I don't know. I should. The winners are random, so I don't know whom I should corrupt. But once the winner come forward and say, here is my winning ticket, and you propagate your winning ticket across the network together with your opinion about the block, now I know who they are. For sure, I can corrupt all thousand of them given to my incredible powers. But so what? Whatever they said, they already said, and their winning tickets and their opinions are virally propagated across the network. And I do not have the power, no more than the US government or any government has the power, to put back in the bottle a message virally propagated by WikiLeaks. So everything you've just described is kind of, is fascinating, a set of ideas. And, uh, you know, online I've been reading quite a bit and people are really excited about those set of ideas. Nevertheless, it is not the dominating technology today. So Bitcoin in terms of cryptocurrency is the most popular uh, cryptocurrency and then Ethereum and so on. So it's useful to kind of comment, we already talked about proof of work a little bit, but what in your sense does Bitcoin get right and where is it lacking? Okay, so the first thing that Bitcoin got right is to understand that there was the need of a cryptocurrency. And that, in my opinion, <laughs> Trumps, they deserve all the success because they said the time is ripe for this idea. Because yes. very often it's not enough to be right yet, to be right at the right time. Yes. And uh, somebody got it right there. So hat off to Bitcoin for that. And um, and so what they got right is that it is hard to subvert and change the ledger, to, to cancel a, um, a transaction. It's not impossible, but it is very hard. What they did not get right is somehow that uh, is a great store of value, currency-wise, but uh, money is not only a question that you store it and you put under the mattress. Money wants to be transacted. And the transactions in Bitcoins are very little. So if you want to store value, everybody needs a store of value. Might as well use a Bitcoin. I mean, it's the plant, but uh, um, if you are of, um, uh, don't look at that for a moment, at least is a great store of value, and everybody needs a store of value. But most of the time, we want to transact, we want to interact, we don't put the money under the mattress, right? So we wanted to, and that, they didn't get it right. That is too slow to transact. Too, too few transactions. Just scalability. The scalability issue. Is it possible to build stuff on top of Bitcoin that uh, sort of uh, fixes the scalability. I mean, this is the thing, you look at, there's a bunch of technologies that kind of hit the right need at the right time and they have flaws, but we kind of build infrastructures on top of them over time to fix it, as opposed to getting it right from the beginning. Or, or is, is it difficult to do? Well, that is difficult to do. So you're talking to somebody that uh, when I decided to throw my hat in the arena and I decided, first of all, I, as I said before, I much admire my predecessors. I mean, they got it right, a lot of things. And I, and I really 
and uh, admire for that. But you know, I had a choice to make: either I patch something that has holes all over the place, yes. or I start from scratch. Yeah. I decided to start from scratch because sometimes yeah. it's a better way. So, what about uh, Ethereum, which looks at proof of stake and a, a lot of different innovative ideas that kind of uh, improve or seek to improve on some of the flaws of Bitcoin? Ethereum had another great idea. So they figured out that it was that money and payments are important as they are. They are only the first level, the first stepping stone. The next level are uh, smart contracts. And they were at the vision to say, the people will need smart contract, which allow me and you to somehow to, to transact securely without being shopped around by a trusted third party, by a mediator. By the way, because mediators are hard to find, and in fact, maybe even impossible to find if you live in Thailand and I live in, um, in, in New Zealand, maybe we don't have a, a common person that we know and trust. And even if we find them, guess what? They want to be paid. So much so, right, that uh, 6% of the, of the world uh, GDP is, uh, goes into financial friction, which is essentially third party. So the headed right of the world needed that. But again, the scalability is not there. And the system is uh, of smart contracts in Ethereum is uh, slow and expensive. And um, and I, I believe is not enough to satisfy the, the appetite and the need that we have for smart contracts. Well, what do you make of just as a small sort of aside in human history, perhaps it's a big one, is the NFT, the non-fungible tokens. Do you find those interesting technically or is it more interesting on the social side of things? Well, um, both. I think, you know, I think it's um, NFTs are actually great, right? So you have this... Um, you are an artist to create a, a song, or it could be um, a, a piece of art. Um, he has many unique representation, right, of a, of a unique uh, uh, a piece, whether it's an artifact of uh, uh, something dreamed up uh, by you, and uh, and as unique representation that now you can trade. And allow, and the important part is that now you have this, uh, not only the NFTs themselves, but the ability to trade them quickly, fast, securely, knowing that who who owns which rights. And that gives a totally new opportunity for content creators to be remunerated for what they do. So, but ultimately you still have to have that scalability, security, uh, and decentralization to to make yes. it you know <laughs> to to make it Absolutely. work for bigger and bigger applications. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still wonder what kind of applications are yet to be like enabled by it because so much. The interesting thing about NFTs, you know, if you look outside of art, is uh, just like money, you can start playing with different social constructs. Is you can start playing with the ideas you can start playing with um with uh, even like investing somebody was talking about almost creating an economy out of uh like uh creative people or influencers like if you start a youtube channel or something like that you can invest in that person and you can start trading their creations and then almost like create a market out of people's ideas, out of people's creations, out of the people themselves. 
that generate those creations. And there's a lot of interesting possibilities of what you can do with that. I mean, it seems ridiculous, but uh, you're basically creating a hierarchy of value, maybe artificial, in the digital world and are trading that. But in so doing, are inspiring people to create. <laughs> so maybe uh, as a sort of our economy gets better and better and better, where actual work in the physical space uh, becomes less and less in terms of its importance, maybe we'll completely be operating in the digital space where, uh, where these kinds of economies have more and more power. And then you have to have this kind of blockchains to uh, the scalability, security, and decentralization. And decentralization is, of course, the tricky one because uh, people in power start to get nervous. Absolutely. <laughs> Once in power, you're always nervous to be supplanted by somebody else. <laughs> but this is your job. So you, Congratulations, you, <laughs> you got the job, the top job, and now everybody wants it. <laughs> well, what is your sense about our, our time and the future hope about the decentralization of power? Do you think that's something that we can actually achieve uh, given that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and it's so wonderful to be absolutely powerful? Well, good question. So, there are, so first of all, I believe, by the way, there is a, um, um, it's a complex question, uh, Lex. Um, um, uh, and like uh, all the rest of your questions. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> I'm but, so uh, very sorry. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I, I am enjoying it. So, but um, so there are two things. First of all, power has been um, uh, centralized for a variety of reasons. When you want to get it, it's easier for somebody, uh, even a single uh, person, to grab power. But there is also some kind of a technology, lack thereof, that. Uh, justified having in power because in a way in a society in which even communication never mind blockchain which is common knowledge but even simple unilateral communication is hard it is much easier to say you do as i say because right, the alternative is but as so there is a little bit of a technology barrier but i think that and and now to get to this uh, common knowledge it is a totally different story now we have finally the technology for doing this so that is one part. But I really believe that you know, not, by having a distributed system, not only you don't have a way, you have actually much more stable and durable system. Because not only for corruption, but even for things that go astray, and you give it a long enough time by strange uh, version of Murphy's Law, whatever goes wrong, goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and if, if you, the power is diffused, you actually are much more stable. If you look at uh, any any living uh, complex living being is distributed. I mean, um, uh, I don't have somebody is uh, okay. Tell Silvia now it's time to eat. Uh, so. You have millions of cells in your body. You have billions of bacteria. Exactly. Help me in the guts. I think you know we are in a soup that somehow it's keeps us alive. Mess. It is. Uh, is uh, and, and so and strange enough, however, when we design systems. We design them centralized. We ourselves are distributed beings. And when we plan and say, okay, I want to create a, an architecture, how about I, I make a pyramid, I put <laughs> this on the top and the power flows down. 
And, um, and so, I, again, it's a, a little bit perhaps of a technology problem, but now the technology is there, so it is a big challenge to rethink how we want to organize power um, in very large system. And, uh, and, and, and distributed system, in my opinion, are much more resilient. Let's put it this way. There was a wine of my uh, Italian uh, compatriots, right? You know, Machiavelli, who, who looked at the time, there was a big, uh, there was a bunch of a small state, a democratic Republic of Florence, of Venice, and, and the other thing. And there was the Ottoman Empire, that at the time was an empire, and uh, Assad was very centralized. And he made a political observation that goes roughly to say, whenever you have such a centralized thing, it's very hard to overtake that, that form of government is centralized. But if you get it, it's so easy to keep <laughs> the population. <laughs> when instead, these other, uh, these other things are much more um, uh, um, uh, resilient. Um, um, when the power is distributed, it's, it's, much more, it's going to be lasting for a much longer time. And ultimately, maybe the human spirit wants that kind of resilience, wants that kind of distribution. It's Absolutely. just that we didn't have technology throughout history. Machiavelli didn't have the computer, the internet, and... Uh, <laughs> that is certainly part of the reason, yes. You've uh, written an interesting blog post if we take a step out of the realm of bits and into this, the realm of governance. You wrote a blog post about making Algorand governance decentralized. Uh, can you explain what that means, the philosophy behind that? You know, how, how do you <laughs> decentralize basically all aspects of this kind of system? Well, the philosophy and the how. Let's start with the philosophy. So I really believe that uh, nothing fixed lasts very long. And, uh, and so I really believe that life is about uh, intelligent adaptation. Things change and we have to be nimble and adjust to change. And, uh, and uh, when I when I see a lot of, uh, of a um, 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 crypto project, actually very proud to say it's fixed in stone. Um, uh, right, you know, code is law, law is code. I verify the code will never change. And you go, wow. When I'm saying this is a recipe to me of, of disaster, not immediately, yeah. but soon. Just imagine you take an ocean liner and you want to go, I don't know, from uh, uh, Lisbon to New York and you set a course Iceberg, no iceberg, uh, tempest, no tempest, and all. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you keep on going. That is not the way. You need uh, a till. You need to correct. You need to adjust. And um, and so, um, um, by the way, we design algorand with the idea that uh, the code was evolving mm -hmm. as the needs. And of course, however, is a system in which, and every time there is an adjustment, you must have essentially a vote that. Uh, right now is uh, orchestrated with 90% of the stake. They say, okay, we are ready, we agree on the next version, and we pick up this version. So we are able to evolve without losing too many components left and right. But I think without evolving, any system essentially become asphytic and is going to shrivel and die sooner or later. Yeah. And, uh, and so that is, um, is needed. And what you want to do on the blockchain, you have a perfect platform in which you can log your wishes, your votes, your things, so that you have a guarantee that whatever vote you express is actually seen by everybody else. So everybody sees really the outcome, call it of a referendum, of a change, 
and VETE is, uh, in my opinion, uh, a system that wants to live long as to adapt. There is an interesting question about leaders. Uh, I've talked to Vitalik Buterin, I'll probably talk to him again soon. He's uh, one of the leaders, maybe one of the faces of the Ethereum project. And it's interesting, you have uh, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, who's the face of Bitcoin, I guess, but he's faceless. He, she, they. <laughs> it does seem like in our, whatever it is, maybe it's 20th century, maybe it's Machiavellian thinking, but we seek leaders. Leaders have value. Linus Torvald, the leader of uh, of Linux, um, the open source development a lot. I mean, there's no, it's not, it's not that the leadership is sort of dogmatic, but it's inspiring. And it's also powerful in that through leaders, we propagate the vision. Like it, the, the vision of the project is more stable. Maybe not the details, but the vision. And so do you think there's value to, because there's a tension between decentralization and leadership, like and visionary. Yes. Do, wh what do you make of that tension? Okay, so I really believe that that's another good question. I think of it, you know, um, I really believe in the power of emotions. I think the, the <laughs> emotions are a creative impulse of, yeah. of everybody else. And very, therefore, it's very easy for a leader to be a, a physical person, a real being, and uh, that uh, interprets our emotions. And by the way, these emotions have to resonate. And what is good is that very, 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 the more intimate our emotions are, the more universal they are, mm. paradoxically. Yes. The more personal, the more everybody else <laughs> yes. somehow magically agrees and That's feels a bit of the same. And so, and it's very important to have a leader in, in the initial phase that generates out of nothing something. That is important leadership. But then the true tested leadership is to disappear after you led the community. So in my opinion, the quintessential leader in my, uh, in, in, uh, in, according to my vision, is George Washington. He served mm. for one term, he served yeah. for another term, and then all of a sudden he retired and became a private citizen, and 200 and change years later, we still are, with some defects, but we have done a lot of things right, and we have been able to evolve. That, to me, is success in leadership. Well, instead, you contrast our experiment with a lot of experiments. I've done so much, so well, that I want another four years. And why shouldn't I be only a four and I have another eight? Yeah. <laughs> why should it be another eight? Give me 16, I will fix all your problems. And now, then is the type, in my opinion, of failed leadership. Leadership ought to be really lead, ignite, and disappear. And if you don't disappear, the system is going to die with you. And it's not a good idea for everybody else. Is there, so we've been talking a little bit about cryptocurrency, but is there spaces where this kind of blockchain ideas that you're describing, which I find fascinating, uh, do you think they can revolutionize some other aspects of our world that's not just money? A lot of things are going to be revolutionized. Is uh, is uh, independent of finance. By the way, I really believe uh, that um, uh, finance is uh, an incredible form of freedom. I mean, 
if I'm right. free to do everything I want, but I don't have the means to do anything, that's a bad idea. So I really think financial freedom is a very, very important. But you know, but just I can say that you know, against you know censorship, you write something of the chain, and now nobody can take it out. Can take it out. That is a very important way to express you know um, 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 our view. And um, and then uh, the transparency that, uh, that 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 you give because uh, everybody can see what's happening on the blockchain. So uh, transparency is not money, but I believe uh, that transparency actually is a very important ingredient also of finance. Let, let's put it this way. As much as I'm enthusiastic about blockchain and uh, uh, decentralized finance, uh, um, and uh, we have actually our expression, we're trying, we're creating this future five, because as much as we want to do, we must agree that the first guarantee of financial growth and prosperity are really the legal system, the courts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we may not think about them and say, oh, the courts are a kind of b- b- bunch of boring lawyers, but without them, I'm saying there is no certainty, there is no um, notion of, of, of equality, there is no notion that you can resolve your disputes thing. That's what thrives the commerce and things. And so what I really believe that the blockchain actually makes a lot of this trust essentially automatic by making it impossible to cheat in very way. Mm-hmm. You don't even need to go to court if nobody can change the ledger, mm-hmm. right? So it essentially is a way of, uh, you cannot solve a legal system reduces to a blockchain, but what I'm saying, a big chunk of it can actually be guaranteed and there is no reason why technology should be antagonistic um, um, to legal scholarship. It, it could be actually coexisting, and one should start to doing the interest things that technology alone cannot do, and then you go from there. Um, but but I think that is uh, essentially is uh, it, it, blockchain can affect all kinds of our uh, of our behavior. Yes, yeah, so in some sense, the transparency, the uh, required transparency, ensures honesty prevents corruption. So there's a lot of systems that could use that and the legal system is one of them. There is a little bit of a tension that I wonder if you can speak to where this kind of transparency, there's a tension with privacy. Is it possible to achieve privacy if wanted on uh, on a blockchain? Do you, have, do you have ideas about different technologies that can do that? People have been playing with different ideas. So absolutely, the answer is uh, yes. And um, by the way, I'm a cryptographer. Uh, right. uh, okay. So I really believe in privacy, and I believe in uh, and, and I have uh, devoted you know, um, um, a big chunk of my life to guarantee privacy, even when it seems almost impossible to have it. And um, and it is possible to have it, and also in the blockchain too. And however, I believe in timing as well. And I believe that the people have the right to understand their system they live in. And uh, right now, um, uh, people can understand the blockchain to be uh, something that is uh, not con- uh, cannot be altered and is uh, transparent. And that is good enough. And right now, any way to add, and there is a pseudo-privacy for the fact that 
who knows if this keys belong public key belongs to me or to you, right? And I can when I want to change my money from one public key, I split it to other public keys, go and figure out which one is Silvio, or all of them are Silvio, or only one of Silvio. Who knows? So you get some vanilla privacy, not, not, not the one I can talk. And I think it's good enough because, and it's important for now that we absorb this stage. Because the next stage, we must understand the privacy tool rather than taking on faith. When the public starts to say, I believe in the scientists and the whatever they say, I swear by them. And therefore, if they tell me it's private, it's private. And nobody understands it very well. We need a much more educated about the tools we are using. And so I look forward to deploying more and more privacy on the blockchain. But uh, we are not... I, I I will not rush to it until the people understand and are behind whatever we have right now. So you build privacy on top of the power of the blockchain. You have to first understand the power of the blockchain. Yes. yes. So Algorand is like one of the most exciting, technically at least from my perspective, technologies, ideas in this whole space. What's the future of Algorand look like? Uh, is it possible for it to dominate the world? Let's put it this way. I certainly working very hard with a great team to give the best blockchain <laughs> that uh, one uh, can demand and enjoy. And that said, I really believe that uh, there is going to be, it's not a winner takes them all. So it's going to be a few blockchains and each one is going to have its own uh, brand and uh, it's going to be great at something. And sometimes is a scalability, sometimes is a ease of use, sometimes is a thing. And and it's important to have a dialogue between these things. And I'm sure, and I'm working very hard to make sure that one is one of them. But I don't believe of it, you know, is even uh, desirable to have, you know, um, a winner and takes all because uh, um, we need to express different things. But the important thing is going to have a, enough interoperability with various systems so that you can transfer your assets where you have the best tool to service them, whatever your needs are at the time. So there's a idea, I don't know, they call themselves Bitcoin maximalists, which is essentially the bet that uh, the philosophy that Bitcoin will eat the world. So you're talking about it's good to have variety their claim is it's good to have the best technology dominate the the medium of exchange, the the medium of store of value, the money, the you know, the the digital currency space. What's your sense of the positives and the negatives of that? So, I feel people are smart, and it's going to be very hard. For anybody and to win. Bitcoin, uh, man, uh, to win, and because people want more and more things, yeah. uh, um, there is an Italian saying that goes as uh, translates well. I think uh, it goes: "The appetite grows while eating." Okay, <laughs> I think you understand what it, what it means. Yes. So I say I'm not hungry. Oh, oh, okay, food. Oh, let me try this. So we want more and more and more. And when you find something like Bitcoin, which I already had very good things to say, but it does something very well, but is a static. Mm -hmm. I mean, store of value, yes, I think it's a great way. For the rest, you know, it, it would be a sad world if uh, the world in which we are so anchoring down, so defensive, 
that we want to store value and hide it under the mattress. I long for a world in which it is open, people want to transact and interact with this way. And therefore, when you want to store value, one perhaps one chain, you want to have to transact, maybe is another. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, one chain cannot be store of value or other thing, but I really believe that I, I believe in the ingenuity of people and in the innovation that is intrinsic to the human nature. We want always different things. So how can it be something invented, whatever it is, decades ago, is going to fulfill the needs of our future generations? Um, I'm not going to uh, fulfill my needs, let alone one of my kids <laughs> or their kids. <laughs> is, uh, we are going to have a different world, and uh, uh, things will evolve. So, so you believe, yeah. So you believe that life, intelligent life, is ultimately about ad adaptability yes. and uh, evolving. So static yes. is uh, static loses in the end. Yes. <laughs> uh, let me ask the. Well, first, the ridiculous question. Do you have any clue who's, who Satoshi Nakamoto is? Is that even an interesting question? Well, is it like you? your questions By the way. <laughs> are very interesting. So, and I think that I, I, so I would say, first of all, it's not me. Okay. And I can prove it because, you know, if I were Satoshi Nakamoto, I would have not found an algorithm, which was a, <laughs> takes totally different principle to, to approach to, to the system. But the other thing, who is Satoshi Nakamoto? You know what the right answer is? It's not him or she, her or them. Satoshi Nakamoto is Bitcoin. Because to me, it's such a coherent proof of work that at the end, the creator and the creation identify themselves. So he says, okay, I understand Michelangelo. Okay, he did the Sistine Chapel, fine. He did the St. Peter's Dome, fine. He did uh, uh, the, the Moses of the Pietra statue, fine. But besides this, who was Michelangelo? <laughs> this, yeah. this is the wrong question. This is his own work. That is Michelangelo. Yeah. So I think that when you look at the Bitcoin, is a piece of work that as it affects, yes, like anything human. But it was captivated the imaginations of millions of people as uh, subverted the status quo. And I'm saying, you know, whoever <laughs> this person of people are, he's living in this piece of work. The I mean, it is Bitcoin. That's, that's, uh, that's my the idea of the work is, yes. is, is bigger. We forget that sometimes. It's something about our biology once likes to see a face and attach a face to the idea when really the idea is the thing we love, the idea is the thing that had impact, the idea is the thing that ultimately we, you know, Steve Jobs or somebody like that, we associate with the Mac, with the iPhone, with j just everything he did at Apple. Apple actually, the company is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, the man is, uh, is uh, is uh, pales in comparison to the creations. Correct, of the and the sense of aesthetics that has brought yes. to the daily lives, and very often uh, uh, aesthetic wins in the long, in the long, in the long end. And uh, these are very elegant design product. And when you say, "Oh, elegance," a very few people care about it. Apparently, millions and millions and millions and millions of people do because we are attracted by beauty, and uh, these are beautifully designed products. And uh, and uh, and you know and they've uh, in addition to have the technological aspect of the other thing and I think uh, yes that is uh, 
Yeah, as Dostoevsky said, beauty will save the world. So I'm I'm with you on that one. Great. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, currently seems like cryptocurrency, all these different technologies are um, gathering a lot of excitement, not just in our discourse, but in their like scale of financial impact. Uh, a lot of companies are starting to invest in Bitcoin. Do you think that uh, the main method of store of value and exchange of value, basically money will soon or at some point in the century will become cryptocurrency? Yes. So mind you, as I said, that the notion of cryptocurrency, like any other fundamental human notion, has to evolve, but yes. So I think that uh, it has a, a lot of momentum behind it. Um, it's not only static, as of this uh, programmable money, as a, uh, I think- the Smart contracts. Smart contracts, kind of is, uh, it allows a peer-to-peer -peer interaction among people who don't even know each other, right? Uh, and they don't even, therefore, cannot even trust each other just because of, they never uh, saw each other. So I think it's so powerful that uh, uh, it's going to do. That said, again, a particular cryptocurrency should develop and cryptocurrency they will all develop but the answer is yes we are going uh, towards a much more uh, unless we have a society a sudden crisis for different reasons which uh, well, there's nobody always, hopes there's always an asteroid there's always right, right, uh, uh, something uh nuclear war and ex all the existential crisis that we kind of think about including artificial intelligence uh okay it, it's funny you mentioned that um Michelangelo and Steve Jobs, you know, set of ideas represents the person's work. So we talked about Algorand, which is a super interesting set of technologies, but, you know, he did also win the, the Turing Award. <laughs> <laughs> you have a bunch of, you have a bunch of ideas that are, you know, seminal ideas. So can we talk about cryptography for a little bit? What is the most beautiful idea in cryptography or computer science or mathematics in general? Asking somebody who has explored the depths of all. <laughs> well, there are a few contenders. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, Either your work or, or, or well, other work. Um, uh, let's leave my work aside. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, so, but one powerful idea, and is a both an old idea in some sense, and a very, very modern one, and in my opinion, is this idea of a one-way function. So, a function that is easy to evaluate. So, given x, you can compute f of x easily. But given f of x, it's very hard to go back to x. Okay, think like. Breaking a glass, easy. Reconstruct the glass, harder. Frying an egg, easy. <laughs> From the fried egg to go back to the original egg, harder. If you want to be extreme, killing a living being, unfortunately, easy. The other way around, very hard. And so the fact that a notion of, of a function, which you have a, a recipe that is in front of your eyes to transform an X into F of X, and then from F of X, even though you see the recipe to transform it, you cannot go back to X. That, in my opinion, is one of the most elegant 
and momentous notions that there are. And is a, a computational notion because of the difficulties in a computational sense. And is a mathematical notion because we were talking about function. And uh, is so fruitful because that is actually the foundation of all cryptography. And uh, let me tell you, it's an old notion because very often in any mythology that we think of, the most powerful gods or goddesses are the ones of X and the opposite of X, mm -hmm. the gods of love and death. And when you take opposite, they don't just you know erase one another, you create something way more powerful. And they, this one-way function is extremely powerful because essentially becomes something that is easy for the good guys and bad for the bad, hard for the bad guys. So for instance, in pseudo-random number generation, the easy part of the function corresponds you want to generate bits very quickly and hard is predicting what the next bit is. It says, it doesn't look the same. One is X L of X, going from X for X to X hard, what has to do with predicting bits? By a magic of reductions and mathematical um, 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 apparatus, this simple function morphs itself into sort of random generation. This simple function morphs itself in digital signature scheme in which digitally signing should be easy and forging should be hard. Again, a digital signature is not going from X to F for X, but the magic and the richness of this notion is that, that it is so powerful that it morphs in all kinds of incredible constructs. And uh, in both these uh, two opposites coexist, the easy and the hard, and in my opinion, is a very, very elegant notion. So That simple notion ties together cryptography, like you said, pseudo-random number generation. You have work on pseudo-random functions. What are those? <laughs> what uh, what's the difference in those and the generators, pseudo-random number generators? Okay, let's. Uh, How do they work? Let's uh, let's uh, go back to pseudo-random number generation. Yes. First of all, people think that a pseudo-random number generation generates a random number. Not true, because I don't believe that uh, from nothing you can get you can <laughs> you can get uh, something. So nothing from nothing, but. Uh, <laughs> Randomness, you cannot create out of nothing, but what you can do is that you can be expanded. So in other words, if you give me somehow 300 random bits, truly random bits, then I can give you 300,000, 300 million, 300 trillions, 300 quadrillions, as many as you want, random bits, so that even though I tell you the recipe by which I produce these bits, mm -hmm. but I don't tell you the initial 300 random numbers, I keep them secret, and you see all the bits I produced so far, if I, if you were to bet, given all the bits produced so far, what is the next bit in my sequence? Better than 50-50. Of course, 50-50, anybody can guess, right? Mm -hmm. But to be inferring something, you have to be a bit better. Then the effort to, to do this extra bit is so enormous that is de facto random. So that is a sort of random generator are these expanders of secret randomness, which goes extremely fast. Okay, this said, what is Expanders of secret randomness, beautifully put, okay. Yes. So every time, every time somebody who, if you're a programmer is using a function 
that's not called pseudo-random. It's called random usually, you know, these programming languages and it's generating different. Uh -huh. uh, uh, that's essentially expanding the secret randomness. Well, they should. In the past, actually, most of library, they used uh, something pre-modern cryptography, unfortunately. They would be better served <laughs> to make a 300 uh, uh, real seed random number and uh, and then expand them properly, as yeah. we know now. Uh, but that has been a, a very um, uh, old uh, idea. In fact, one of the um, best philosophers have debated uh, the, uh, whether the world was deterministic or probabilistic. Yes. Very big questions, right? Does God it, play dice? Exactly. Einstein says it does. It doesn't. Yeah. But in fact, now... We have a language that even uh, at Albert uh, time was not around, but it was this complexity theory, modern complexity-based cryptography. And now we know that if the universe has 300 random bits, whether where is random or probabilistic or uh, deterministic, it doesn't matter because you can expand this initial seed of randomness forever in which all the experiments you could do, all the inferences you could do, all the things you could do, they are, you are not be able to distinguish them from truly random. So if you are not able to distinguish truly random from this super duper pseudo randomness, are they really different things? So I must say, something to become really philosophical. So to, yeah. to, for things to be different, but I don't have in my lifetime, in my lifetime of the universe, any method to set them aside, well, I should be intellectually honest, say, well, Pseudo-random in this special function is as good as random. Do you think true randomness is possible? And what does that mean? So I, practically speaking, exactly as you said, if you're being honest, the, 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 the pseudo-randomness approaches true randomness pretty quickly. But is it, is it uh, maybe this is a philosophical question, is there such a thing as true randomness? Well, the answer is actually maybe, but if there ex exists, most probably it's expensive to get. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and in any case, if I give you one uh, of mine, um, random you string, you'll never tell. tell them apart. Yeah, by yeah. no any other shape, no matter how much you work on it. So in some sense, uh, if it exists or not, it really is a quote philosophical sense in the a um, colloquial way to say that uh, we cannot uh, somehow pin it down. Do you ever, again, just to stay on philosophical for a bit, for a brief moment, do you ever think about free will and uh, whether that exists? Because ultimately free will sort of is this experience that we have, like we're making choices, even though it, it appears that, you know, the world is, deterministic at the core. I mean, that's against the debate, but if it is in fact deterministic at the lowest possible level, uh, at, the, at, at the physics level, uh, how do you make, if, if it is deterministic, how do you make, uh, what, how do you make sense of the difference between the experience of us feeling like we're making a choice and the whole thing being deterministic? So first of all, let me give you a gut reaction yeah. to the equation. And um, the gut reaction is that it is important that we believe that there exists free will. And second of all, almost uh, by weird logic, 
if we believe it exists, then it does exist, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so it's very important for our social con- apparatus, for our sense of idea of ourselves, that it exists. And the, mo- the moment in which, you know, we, we so want we almost we conjure it up in existence. But again, I really feel that if you look at some point, um, the space of free will seems to shrink. We realize how more and more, how much of our, say, genetic apparatus dictates who we are, why we prefer certain uh, things than others, right? And uh, why we react to noises of music. Uh, we prefer poetry and everything else. We may explain even all this. But uh, but uh, at the end of the day, whether ex- exist in a philosophical sense or not, it's like randomness. If you can, if pseudo-random is as good as random, vis-a-vis lifetime of the universe, our experience, then does it really matter? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're talking about randomness. I wonder if I can weave in uh, quantum mechanics for a brief moment. There's, a, you know, a lot of advancements on the quantum computing side. So leveraging quantum mechanics to perform a new kind of computation, and there's concern of that being a threat to a lot of the basic assumptions that underlie cryptography. What do you think? Do you think quantum computing will challenge a lot of cryptography? Will cryptography be able to defend? All those kinds of things. Okay, great. So first of all, uh, for the record, and because I think uh, it matters, but it's important that the record, there are people who continue to contend that Quantum mechanics exist, but has nothing to do with computing. It's not going to accelerate it, um, at least in you know, um, very basic and you know, um, hard computation. That is a belief you cannot uh, uh, take it out. My, I'm a little bit uh, more agnostic about it, but I really believe, going back to whatever I said about the, the one-way function, mm-hmm. so one-way function, what is it? That is a cryptography. So does quantum computing challenge the one-way function? Essentially, you can boil it down to does quantum computing find a one-way function? What is one-way function? Is in one direction, are than the other. Okay, but if quantum computing exists, when you define what it is easy, it's not by a, easy by a classical computer and hard by a classical computer, but easy for a, uh, for a quantum computer, that's a bad idea. But once easy means it should be easy for a quantum and hard for also quantum. Mm-hmm. Then you can see that you are, yes, it's a challenge, but you have hope because you can absorb if quantum computing really realizes and becomes available and, um, uh, according to the promises, then you can use them also for the easy part. Mm-hmm. And once you use it for the easy part, the choices that you have a one-way function, they multiply. So, okay, so the particular in- candidates of one-way function may not be one way anymore, but quantum one-way function may continue to exist. And so I really believe that for, uh, for uh, life to be meaningful with one-way function had to exist. Because just imagine that uh, anything that is becomes easy to, to do. I mean, what kind of life is it? I mean, so you need the, the, and if something is hard, but it's so hard to generate, you'll never find something which is hard for you. You want that there is abundance, there is easy to produce hard problem. 
That's my opinion is why life is interesting because art problems pop up at a really relative speed. So in some sense, I almost think that I do hope they exist. If they don't exist, uh, somehow life is way less interesting than uh, it actually is. Yeah, it, it does. It, that, that's funny. It does seem like the one-way function is fundamental to all of life, which is uh, the the emergence of the complexity that we see around us seem to require the one-way function. I don't know if you uh, play with cellular automata. That's just another formulation of... I know, but uh, yeah, it's, it's but, but very simple. It's, it's yes. almost a very simple illustration of starting out with simple rules and one way being able to generate incredible amounts of complexity, but then you ask the question, can I reverse that? And it's just it's just uh, surprising how difficult it is to reverse that. Huh. Uh, it's surprising even in constrained situations, it's very difficult to prove anything. Uh, that it almost, uh, I mean, the sad thing about it well, I don't know if it's sad, but it seems like we don't even have the mathematical tools to reverse engineer stuff. Uh, I, I don't know if they exist or not, but in the space of cellular automata, where you start with something simple and you create something incredibly complex, can you take something, a small picture of that complex and reverse engineer? That's kind of what we're doing as scientists. You're, you're seeing the result of the complexity and you're trying to come up with some universal law that generate all of this. What is the you know the theory of everything? What are the basic physics laws that generate this whole thing? And there's a hope that you should be able to do that, but it gets it's difficult. Yeah, but there is also some poetry of the fact that it's difficult, right? Because it uh, gives us some mystery <laughs> to life, which yeah, without which uh, fun. I mean, uh, it's not so fun. Uh, right? Life uh, will be less fun. Can we uh, talk about interactive proofs a little bit and zero knowledge proofs? What are those? Okay, how do they work? So interactive proof uh, actually is um, uh, is uh, is a modern realization and uh, conceptualization of something that we knew was true. That you know that is easy to go to lecture. In fact, that's my motivation. We invented schools to go to lecture. Right? We yes. don't say, "Oh, I'm the minister of education. I published this book. You read it." Yeah. And this is book for this year. This book for this year. We spend a lot of our treasury in educating our kids and in person, educating, go to class, interact with teacher on the blackboard and chalk on my time. Now we can have you know whiteboard and presumably you're going to have actually with uh, magic pens and a display yeah. instead. But the, the, the idea is that uh, interactively you can convey truth much more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And we knew this psychologically. It's better to hear an explanation than just to belabor some paper, right? Same thing. So interactive proofs is a way to, to do the following. Rather than doing some complicated, very long papers and possibly infinitely long proofs, exponentially long proofs, you say the following. If this theorem is true, there is a game that is associated to the theorem. And if the theorem is true, this game, I have a winning strategy that I can win half of a of, of the time, mm -hmm. no matter what you do. Okay, so then you say, well, is the theorem true? You believe me, why should I believe you? So, okay, let's play. So, and if I prove that I have a strategy that, and I win the first time and I win the second time, then I lose a third time, but I win 
every, say, um, more than half of the time, or I win, say, all the time if the theorem is true, and at least at the most half of the time if the theorem is false, you statistically get convinced. You can verify this quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, and therefore, is a much... When the game and the game typically is extremely fast, so you generate a miniature game in which if the theorem is true, I win all the time. If the theorem is false, I can win at most half of the time. And if I win, 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 you can deduce either the theorem is true, which most probably is the case, so to speak, <laughs> or I've been very, very unlucky because it's like if I had a uh, hundred coin tosses and I got 100 heads, very improbable, right? So that is a way. And so this transformation from the formal statement of a proof into a game that can be quickly played and you can draw statistics how many times you win and you, is is one of the big conquests of modern complexity theory. And in fact, actually has highlighted the, the notion of a, of a proof as a really give us a new insight of what to be true means and what, what truth is and what proofs are. So these are legitimately proofs. So yes. what kind of mysteries can it allow us to unlock and, and prove? You said truth. Uh, so uh, what does it allow us, what kind of truth does it allow us to arrive at? So it enlarges the realm of what is provable because in in some sense the classical way of proving things was extremely inefficient from the verifier point of view. Yes. Right. So <laughs> and and so therefore there is so much proof that you can take. Um but in this way you can actually very quickly in minutes uh, verify something that is uh, the correctness of an assertion. But otherwise, it would have taken you know, a lifetime to belabor and check all the, 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 the passages of a very, very, very long proof. And you better check all of them because if you don't check one line, an error can be in that line. And so you have to go linearly through all the stuff rather than bypass this. So you enlarge a tremendous amount what the proof is. And in addition, uh, once you have uh, the idea that essentially a proof system is something that allows me to convince you of a true statement, but does not allow me to convince you of a false statement, and that uh, at the end says events of proof. Proof can be beautiful, should be, should be elegant, but at the end it's, is true or false, if you want to be able to differentiate. It is possible to prove the truth and it should be impossible or statistically extremely hard to prove something false. And if you do this, you can prove way, way more once you understand this. And on top of it, we got some insight, like in visit zero-knowledge proofs, that is in something which you took for granted were the same, knowledge and verification, are actually separate concepts. So you can verify that an assertion is correct without having any idea why this is so. And so people felt to say, if you want to verify something, you have to, to have the proof. Once you have the proof, you know why it's true, you have the proof itself. And so somehow you can totally differentiate knowledge and uh, and uh, and verification, validity. So totally, you can decide if something is true and still have no idea. Is there a good example in your mind? Oh, 
actually, you know, at the very beginning, we labor to find the first knowledge, mm -hmm. zero knowledge proof. Then we find a second, then we find a third. And then a few years later, actually we proved a theorem, which essentially says every theorem, no matter what about, can be explained in a zero knowledge way. Okay. Wow. So it's not a, a class of theorem, but all theorems. And it's a very powerful thing. So it, we were really, for thousands of years, bought this identity between knowledge and verification had to be hand in hand together and uh, for no reason at all. I mean, we had to develop a way of technology. As you know, I'm very big on technology because uh, it makes us more human and uh, and make us understand more things than before. And uh, and I think that is a that is a um, uh, that's a good thing. So this uh, interactive proof process, um, there's power in games. Yes. And you've recently you've gotten into uh, recently. I'm not sure you can correct me. Uh, mechanism design. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, I mean, first of all, maybe you can explain what mechanism design is and uh, the the fascinating space of playing with games and designing games. Mechanism design is that you want to, you want a certain behavior to arise, right? If you want to organize, you know, a societal structure or something, you want to have some orderly uh, behavior to arise, right? Because uh, uh, it is important for your goals. But but you know that people, they don't care what my goals are. <laughs> they care about uh, maximizing their utility. So put it crassly, making money. The more money, the better, so to speak. Right? I'm exaggerating. Self-interest in whatever. Self-interest. In whatever way they So what you want to do is, um, uh, um, uh, ideally, what you want to do is to design a game so that while people played so to maximize their self-interest, they achieve the social goal and behavior that I want. That is really the best <laughs> type of thing. And it is a very hard science and art to design these games. And it challenges us to actually come up with a solution concept for a way to analyzing the games that need to be broader. And I think when I'm game theory has developed you know, a bunch of very compelling way to analyze the game, that if the game has a best property, well, you can have a pretty good guarantee that it's going to be played in a given way. Mm -hmm. But as it turns out, and not surprisingly, these tools have a range of action like anything else. All these uh, so-called the technically solution concept, the way to analyze the game, like dominant strategy equilibrium, if something comes to mind, would be very meaningful, uh, but as a limited power. In some sense, the games that can be uh, admit such a, a way to be analyzed. It's a very action. specific kind of games, and the, the rules are set, the constraints are set, the utilities yes. are all set. Yes. So you can say if you want stronger. to reason, if, if there is a way, say, uh, that you can analyze a restricted class of games this way. But most games you know, don't fall into this restricted class. Then what do I do? When you need to enlarge a way what a rational player can do. So, for instance, 
uh, in my opinion, at least in some of my, I played with this for a few years and I, uh, I was doing some exoteric things, I'm sure uh, in, uh, in, the, in the space that uh, were, were not exactly mainstream. And then I changed uh, my interest and now I do blockchain. But, but what I'm saying, for a while I was doing, the, so for instance, to me is a way in which uh, I designed the game and you don't have the best move for you. Mm -hmm. The best move is the move that is best for you, no matter what the other players are doing. Sometimes a game doesn't have that, okay? It's too much to ask. But I can design the game such a way, given the option in front of you, say, oh, these are really stupid for me. Take them aside. But these, these are not stupid. So if you design the, the game so that in any combination of non-stupid things that the player can do, mm -hmm. I achieve what I want, I'm done. Yeah. I don't care to find the very unique equilibrium. I, I don't give a, a, a damn. I want to say, well, as long as you don't do stupid things and nobody else does stupid things, good social things outcome arise, I should be equally happy. Mm -hmm. And so I really believe that um, um, this type of, of uh, analysis you know, is uh, it's possible and uh, as a bigger uh, radius, so it, it reaches um, more games, more classes of games. And, uh, and after that, we have to enlarge it again. And, uh, and it's going to be, we are going to have fun because uh, human behavior can be conceptualized again. in many ways. And uh, it's, it's, it's a long game. Do you have, <laughs> it's a long game. Do you have uh, favorite games that you're looking at now? I mean, I suppose your work with blockchain and Algorand is a kind of game that you're, you, you basically this mechanism design, design the game such that it's scalable, Secure and decentralized, right? Yes, uh, yes. And very often, you have to say, and very, and, and you must also design so that the incentives are, uh, are, uh, right. uh, are, and tell, tell you the truth, whatever uh, little I learned from my venture in uh, mechanism design is that incentives are very hard to design because people are very complex creatures. And so, and so somehow the way we design algorithm is that totally different way, essentially with no incentives, essentially. <laughs> um, 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 and, um, and, uh, but, but technically speaking, there is a notion that uh, uh, is actually believable, right? Uh, so that to say, um, people want to maximize their utility. Yes, up to a point. Let me, let me tell you. Assume that if you are honest, you make 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. But if you are dishonest, no matter how dishonest you are, you can only make 100 bucks and one cent. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be? I'm saying, you know what? Technically speaking, even that one cent, but nobody bothers and say, yeah. how much am I going to make by honest 100? If I'm devious and if I'm a criminal, 100 bucks and one cent. You know, I might as well be honest, okay? Mm -hmm. So that essentially is called, you know, epsilon utility equilibrium but uh i, I think like it's, it. it's it's good and uh, and and uh and, and that's what we design essentially means that you know the reason uh having no incentives is actually a good thing because it prevent people from reasoning how else i'm going to game the system mm -hmm. but why can we achieve in algorithm to have no incentives and in bitcoin instead yet to pay the miners because they do tremendous amount of work because if you have to do a lot of work, then you demand to be paid accordingly. Because mm -hmm. you, right? But if I'm going to say, 
year two add two and two equal to four. How much you want to me pay for this? So if you don't give me this, I don't add the two and two. I would say you can add two and two in your sleep. You don't need to be paid to add the two and two. So the idea is that if we make the system so efficient, so that generating the next block is so damn simple, it doesn't hit the universe, let alone my computer, let alone take some microsecond of computation, I might as well not re being received incentives for doing that and try to incentivize some other part of the system, but not the main consensus, which is a mechanism for generating and adding block to the chain. Since you're Italian, Sicilian, I also heard rumors that you are a connoisseur of food. <laughs> way. Uh, what, you know, if, if I said today is the last day you get to be alive, I'm Russian. You shouldn't have trusted me. You, you, you never know with the Russian whether you're going to make it out or not. Well, if you, you had one last meal, uh, you can travel somewhere in the world. Yes. Either you make it or somebody else makes it. Uh, what's that going to look like? All right. If it's one last meal, I must say, uh, you know, in this era of COVID, uh, I've not been able to see my mom. And uh, and uh, there was my mom was a fantastic chef, okay? Mm. And had this very traditional food. As you know, the very traditional food are great for a reason, because they survived hundreds of years <laughs> yeah. of culinary innovation. Yeah. So, and there is one very laborious thing, which is, uh, um, you heard the name, which is this uh, uh, parmigiana, mm -hmm. but to do it is a piece of art. <laughs> it requires so many hours that only my mama could do it. If we have one last meal, I want a parmigiana, <laughs> okay? What is, uh, what's what's the laborious process? Is, oh, it, is it the ingredients? Is it uh, the actual process? Is it the, the atmosphere and the humans involved? The latter. Uh, the ingredient, like in any other, uh, in the Italian cuisine, believes in very few ingredients. If you take, say, quintessential Italian recipe that everybody knows, um, spaghetti pesto, okay? Mm -hmm. Pesto is olive oil, very good extra virgin olive oil, um, 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 basil, pine nuts, pepper, a clove of garlic, not too much, otherwise you, uh, you do Overpower everything. And yeah. then uh, you have to, to do either uh, two schools of thought, parmesan or pecorino or, or a mix <laughs> of the two. Yeah. I mentioned six ingredients. Yes. That is typical Italian. That is, I understand that there are other cuisines, for instance, the French cuisine, which is extremely sophisticated and extremely combinatorial or some Chinese cuisine, which has a, a lot of, uh, many more ingredients than this. And yet to, the, the art is to put them together, a lot of things. In Italy is really the striving for simplicity. Yet to find few ingredients, but the right ingredients to create something. So in Parmigiana, the ingredients are eggplants, <laughs> there are tomatoes, <laughs> there are basil, but, but uh, the, how to put them together and the yeah. process is, a, is an act of, or love, okay, or labor and love, is that uh, <laughs> you can spend uh, <laughs> the entire day, I mean, I'm ex exaggerating, but the entire morning for sure to do it uh, properly. Yeah, as a Japanese cuisine too, there's a mastery to the simplicity with the sushi. I don't know if you've seen Jiro Germs of Sushi, but there's a mastery to that that's uh, propagated through the generations. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, people love it uh, when I ask about books. I don't know. If, 
if uh, books, whether fiction, nonfiction, technical, or completely non-technical had an impact in your life throughout, if there's anything you would recommend, or even just mention as something that gave you an insight or moved you in some way. So, okay. So <laughs> I don't know if I recommend, mind. because in some sense, you almost had to be Italian or to be such a scholar. But being Italian, one thing that really impressed me tremendously is the Divine Comedy. It is a medieval poem, a very long poem, mm -hmm. divided in three parts, Hell, Purgatory, and Paradise, okay? Mm -hmm. And that is the non-trivial story of a middleman man gets into a crisis, personal crisis, and then out of this crisis, he purifies, makes a catharsis, purifies himself more and more and more until he's become uh, capable of actually meeting God. Okay? And that is actually a complex story. So you have to get some very sophisticated language, maybe Latin at that point, right? we were talking about 1200s um, uh, Italy, right? Um, in, uh, in Florence. And this guy instead, he chose his own dialect not spoken outside his own immediate circle, right? Um, um, a Florentine dialect. And actually, he, Dante really made Italian. Italian. He was, hmm. and, and so I said, how can you express such a sophisticated things and so this? And then the point is that these words that uh, nobody actually knew because they were essentially dialect. And plus a bunch of very intricate rhymes in which they had to rhyme the things. And turns out that by getting meaning from the things that you rhyme, you essentially guess what the world means, <laughs> and you invent Italian, and you communicate by almost osmosis what you want. Yeah. It's a miracle of communication. In a dialect, a very poor language, very unsophisticated, to express a very sophisticated situation. I love it. People love it, and Italians are not Italian, but, but what I got of it is that you know very often, limitations are our strength. Because if you limit yourself at a very poor language, somehow you get out of it and you achieve even better form of communication if you're using a hyper-sophisticated literary language with lots of resonance from the prior books so that you can actually instantaneously quote. He couldn't quote anything because nothing was written in Italian before him. So I really felt that uh, limitations are our strength. And uh, I think that rather than complaining about the limitations, we should embrace them because if we embrace our limitation, limited as we are, we find very creative solutions that people with less limitation we have, we would not even think about it. Oh, so limitation is a kind of superpower if you choose to yes. see it that way. Uh, is there, since you speak both languages, is there something that's lost in translation to you? Is there something you can express in Italian that you can't in English and vice versa maybe? Is there um, something you could say to the musicality of the language? I mean, I, from, I've been to Italy a few times and uh, I'm not sure if it's the actual words, but it's, it's the people are certainly very, um, there's body language too. There's just, the, their whole being is language. <laughs> so I don't know if uh, you miss some of that when you're speaking English in this country? Yes. In fact, actually, 
I certainly I, I'm uh, I miss it, and uh, somehow it was a sacrifice that I made consciously. By the time you know I arrived, I knew that this I was not going to express myself um, at that level, and uh, and it was actually a sacrifice because uh, given to you have also your um, mother tongue is Russian, so you know that you can be very expressive in your mother tongue and not very expressive in a new, tongue, a new yeah. language. And then what people think of you in the new language, because when the precise of expression of things, it generates, you know, it shows you know, elegance, or it shows you know, um, knowledge, or it shows as a census, or it shows as a caste, or education, whatever it is. So all of a sudden, I found myself on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, it, it, So I had to fight all my way up, back up. And but but I'm saying I I go yeah, back to fascinating, it. right? Their the limitations are actually our strength. In fact, is a trick to limit yourself to exceed, right? And you know there are examples in history. If, if you think about, you know, Hernan Cortez, right? He goes to invade Mexico. He has what a few hundred uh, people with him, and uh, he has a um, hundred thousand people in arms on the other side. First thing he does. He limits himself. He sinks his own ship. There is no return. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and at that point, he actually managed That's really to come profound. up victorious. I, I actually, first of all, that's inspiring to me. <laughs> I feel like I have quite a few limitations, but more practically on the Russian side, I'm going to try to do a couple of really big and really tough interviews in Russian. Uh, once COVID lifts a little bit, I'm traveling to Russia. And... I'll keep your advice in mind <laughs> that the limitations is a kind of superpower. We should use it to our advantage because you do feel less, like you're not able to convey your wisdom in, in, in the Russian language. Cause I, I moved here when I was 13. So you don't, you know, the parts of life you live under a certain language are the parts of life you're able to communicate. You know, I became, I became a thoughtful, deep, thoughtful human in English. As, but the, the the pain from World War II, this, the, the music of the people, that was instilled with me in Russian. So I can carry both of those and there's limitations in both. I can't say philosophically profound stuff in Russian, but I can't in English express like that melancholy feeling of like the people. And so combining those two, I'll, I'll somehow- oh, beautifully said. Thanks for sharing, this is great. Yes, I totally understand you, yes. You've accomplished some incredible things in the space of science, in the space of uh, technology, in the space of theory and engineering. Do you have advice for somebody young, an undergraduate student, somebody in high school, or anyone who just feels young <laughs> uh, about life or about career, about making their way in this world? So I was telling before that I believe in emotion and in my hmm. thing is to be true to your own emotion. And that I think that if you do that, you're doing well because it's a life well spent and uh, you are uh, going never tire because you want to solve all these emotional knots that have always intrigued you from the beginning. And I really believe that, you know, to, to live, live meaningfully, creatively, and uh, you have to live your emotional life. 
So I really believe that uh, whether you're a scientist or an, an artist even more, but a scientist, I, I think of them as artists as well. If you are a human being, so you are really to live uh, fully your emotions and uh, to the extent possible, sometimes emotions can uh, be overbearing and uh, my advice is try to express them with more and more confident. Sometimes it's hard, but uh, you are going to be much more fulfilled than uh, by suppressing them. What about love? One of the big ones. What role does that play? That's uh, 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 the bigger part of emotions. That is a, <laughs> it's a scary thing, right? It's a, it's a lot of vulnerability that comes uh, with a love, but uh, there is uh, also so much you know, energy and power and, uh, and, um, and love in all senses and in the traditional sense, but also in, in the sense of uh, a broader sense for uh, for humanity, this feeling, this you know, compassion that you know makes us one with you know other people and the suffering of other people. Uh, I mean, all of this is uh, is a very scary stuff, but is really <laughs> the, 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 the the fabric of life. Well, the 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 sad thing is, it really hurts to lose it. <laughs> yes, that's why that's, the vulnerability that comes with it. Yes. That's the thing about emotion is it's the up and the yeah. down, and uh, the down seems to come always with the up. So, uh, but the up only comes with the down. So, yeah. Uh, uh, let me ask you about the the ultimate down, which is uh, unfortunately we humans are mortal <laughs> or appear to be for the most part. Uh, do you think about your own mortality? Do you do you fear death? I hope so, and I do, <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, without death, there is no life. So at least there is no meaningful life. And death is actually, in some sense, our ultimate motivator <laughs> to live a, a beautiful and meaningful life. I myself felt as a young man that uh, unless I I got an something that I wanted to do. I don't know why I got this idea that said something to say. If I'm not able to say, I would suicide. So maybe it was a way to motivate myself. <laughs> but you don't need to motivate it because in some sense, fortunately, death is there. So you better get up and do your thing and uh, because <laughs> that is the best motivation to, to live fully. Well, what do you think, uh, what do you hope your legacy is? <sighs> you know, uh, you, my, you mentioned you have two kids. Yes, and so I really feel that you know there is uh, on one side is my biological uh, legacy, and that is uh, my two kids, right, and uh, and their kids, hopefully, <laughs> and that is one fine. And the other thing is uh, this uh, common. Uh, enterprise, which is uh, society. And I really feel that my legacy would be better by providing uh, security and privacy. Actually, for me, are metaphorical to say, I want to give you the ability to interact more and take more risks and, uh, and reach out more for more people, as difficult and dangerous as it may seem. But my, my all scientific work is about to, to guarantee privacy and and give you the security of interaction. And uh, not only in a transaction, like it would be a blockchain transaction, but uh, that is really one of the hardcore of my 
emotional problems. And I think that, you know, uh, these are the problems I want to tackle. Yeah, and ultimately privacy and security is freedom. And yes. Freedom is at the core of this. Uh, it's uh, dangerous, just it's like the emotion thing. Uh, the emotion <laughs> thing, yeah. Uh, but ultimately that's how we create all the beautiful things around us. Do you think there's meaning to it all, uh, this life? except uh, the urgency that death provides and us anxious uh, beings create cool stuff along the way? Is there a deeper meaning? And if it is, what is it? Well, meaning of life, actually there are three meanings of life. Great. That's great. One, to seek. Two, to seek. And three, to seek. To seek what? You know, I really- Or is there no answer to that? There's no answer to that. I really think that the journey is more and more important than uh, the destination, whatever that be. And I think uh, that is uh, a journey and uh, is, uh, in my opinion, at the end of the day, I must admit, meaningful in itself. And uh, we must admit that maybe whatever your destination might be, at the end, you know, we may never get there, but uh, where hell was a great ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think there's a better way to end it, Silvio. Thank you for join. Thank you for wasting your extremely <laughs> valuable time with me today, joining on this journey uh, of seeking uh, something together. We found nothing, but it was it was very fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for talking. Thank today. you, Alex. It was been a really uh, special for me to be interviewed by you. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Sylvia McCauley, and thank you to our sponsors, Athletic Greens Nutrition Drink, the Information In-Depth Tech Journalism website, Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee, and BetterHelp Online Therapy. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now, let me leave you with some words from Henry David Thoreau. Wealth is the ability to fully experience life. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.